Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Teta Tet, a social media activist currently in Myanmar. As a member of the Karen ethnic minority, she grew up with stories of the Tatmadaw's brutality, but as a young child she did not quite understand the true evil they were inflicting on others. Now that her eyes are fully open to the true horrors of this military regime, and now that she is witnessing firsthand the very calculated, clinical domination and decimation that the military is enacting on her people, she can't sit back and do nothing. She will not allow the world to ignore her people's plight and is determined to document what is happening in Myanmar. As one of Anna's most trusted news sources on the ground, she describes herself as a little fish, but with thousands of followers on social media, she is playing a vital role in raising awareness and turning the tide on the Tatmadaw. Tet is an extraordinary young woman who is bravely exposing the atrocities committed daily by the Myanmar military for the world to see. Listen and be inspired by another outstanding member of Myanmar's youth, risking everything to save her country and her people. Let's start the conversation. Hey, Ted. I'm here. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> we could see mm-hmm. you trying to join. It's really great to have you with us here, Ted. We know that you've been really active on social media. Mm-hmm. We've been following you for a long time now. So it would be great to kind of know a little bit about you before all of this happened this year and just kind of mm-hmm. sense of your life and what you were doing leading up to this and Sure. So before the coup, I wasn't actively involved with politics in Myanmar, which, you know, hindsight's 2020. I wish I was now. But prior to the coup, um, you know, I'm in my mid twenties and I had already was getting involved specifically with the education sector in Myanmar. So that was where a lot of the work that I was doing before the coup was. And then the coup happened on February 1st, and I still remember being woken by my family and my parents who said very early in the morning at 6 a.m., they said, oh, like, they did it, like, Lutpada, like, we ran to the television, and we saw everything was blocked, and, you know, I was quite an active Instagram user prior, and so then I started to document my personal experiences with the coup starting from then at 6 a.m. on February 1st, and so now we are here many months later. But that's just a little bit about me before the coup. Mm. Did you like in that moment, like, did you just react and say, like, just post as in you would whatever's happening in your life on social media? Or did you actively think I'm going to, you know, speak out about this? Or was that something that came later? Or was that your decision on that day? It was reactionary at first, because I wasn't quite sure if they were going to cut off the, the Wi-Fi or the internet or the phone line. And even then, mobile data had been cut off. So we only had access to Wi-Fi at the time. So I was frantically posting in order not only to connect with people abroad, but also friends who were within the country who I could not contact via the phone just to let them know that I was okay and that we would figure it out. We would figure out what the next steps were. And I think as the second day and the third day rolled on was when I made the decision, okay, I'm going to document who day to day. 
at least be living evidence and testimony of what is happening with my own lived experience, but also trying my best to consolidate the information from other people's experiences within the coup as well. And I think, yeah, just when you say that, actually, that that first morning, the Wi-Fi was still working for a lot of people. So even though the majority of the country was blacked out, some people still had, had access. I had forgotten that actually until until you said it. So, yeah, I understand what you mean. You were just trying to, in case you got cut off, just trying to let people know what was happening um, as quickly as possible. Did you initially protest when the protest started happening a few days later? Did you join that? Yes, I did. So the first protest for us was on February 2nd with the banging pots and pens. We got the notification online via Facebook from a group of university students in Muya. They said, please show your rejection to them. So please bang your pots and pans at eight o'clock. Um, and so I remember joining that. In terms of active protests in Yango, especially it happened within the first week or so was when people started to go out in person because there was still quite a lot of trauma associated with the coup because in 1988, I think a lot of, especially my elders and my family were quite nervous and anxious about us going outside or, you know, they hadn't heard about any protests yet, but they were still nervous about our participation in it, at least with me and the younger people. And so I remember this, they cut off Wi-Fi for almost 28 hours within the first week of so we were completely cut off to the outside world. And it was the next morning that me and my family, we went to the first protest near Sule Pagoda and then later in Lere. And suddenly during the protest, the Wi-Fi came back on. And I remember posting very frantically, you know, we're here, we're alive and we are protesting now. Like, please watch over us. And so that was when I first started to join the protest in Yango. Suzanne was in the country, I was not in the country. And just from the outside perspective, um, and what we were seeing on the news at the beginning, we were seeing a lot on the news and it just seemed like there was so much euphoria. Like it seemed like a carnival atmosphere and, and now it is so different. And Suzanne just sent me and I'm absolutely disgusted by it, but she's just sent me this post that the UK ambassador wrote about how he yes. was walking around Yangon. I saw that. So inappropriate. I'm so ashamed that that's my country. I can't apologize enough for that. But my local friend was yesterday telling me how people have been shot on the bridge near where she lives. And she only lives over the river in Thunlin. In terms of processing it and, and being there as a first hand person documenting it, how has that process been in, in the change? And you must still be just as passionate, but the way that you have to express that passion is so different. No, you're exactly right. It felt like the jet. The first couple of protests, which is um, for people who do not know, it's um, it's our water festival in April, like our New Year's. It was the first time that all of us were able to be outside because many of us were locked in during the second wave of COVID. And so the protests were also you know, our opportunity to see each other and see our people. And the atmosphere was so electric, especially in Neda, which was the area that I protested the most. And it felt very, especially in the beginning, that Maybe we have a chance that they will not turn violent against us this time. Because we still have the memories from 2007 and 88. I was a child in 2007, and I did not have enough of the knowledge or capacity to know what was happening. But I did know that they were shooting at monks, and that my family would not let me go outside because they were worried I would be hit by a stray bullet. But this time, as, as more of an adult, I, I said, oh no, like, you know, maybe we have a chance that they will change their mind. I remember we gave them roses 
the police at Suli. We gave them roses and we said, please remember your, your duty is to protect us. Please don't forget that. But then almost exactly right when they started to use tear gas against us, and then the violence would escalate and more police and more soldiers ended up on the streets. And over the month, you know, we would see the soldiers from the infantry division or the battalion, the ones who are, you know, are not used to the urban areas. They are the ones who uh, carry out the brutal human rights violations and acts within the rural areas. That's when we knew, okay, like here's the real risk. And then, you know, I still remember one month that the Kai was killed. She was the first martyr of Myanmar, only 19 years old. I watched the video of her in Nepal. I could not believe, oh no, they really killed her. And we marched with her name in mind. We said, oh, no more martyrs. Please, like, please let her rest in peace. And we hope that no one else will join her. We prayed very sincerely that no one would join her. And then, you know, now many months later, thousands of us have been killed. Many more. Because the death toll that is being documented is only those who have been killed via gunshot or have been killed in protest. But I think of also the children who have died because of malnutrition and starvation. Or One of my favorite singers from the band called Idiots, Go Raymond, passed away because he could not receive medical attention in time. While he was in the uh, PDF area, and the only reason he was there was because he wanted to motivate the youth to keep going because he knew how much he meant to us as a singer. And so these types of things, I don't know if there are any official numbers, but there are many more of us now who are gone. And so definitely I think as time has gone on, I've had to absorb a lot more tragedy and have to process it differently. But my priority has always been to be very consistent. Even if it is just one post a day, to let people know that I'm still here and that I'm still willing to document and that please don't give up. You know, but I find myself, I think I'm still very small, small fish in this revolution sea. And that has been intentional for me also. If for some reason one day I can no longer, if I can no longer be by their side, that the revolution will still continue on as if nothing happened was my intention with the the role that I took. And like Ted, you know, obviously we have people listening in different countries and some like obviously a lot of people in Myanmar will know who you are, particularly those who are on platforms like Instagram. And I know that you have moved to Twitter as well. Every day you are posting the news of what's happening in Myanmar and you're translating it into English for a Western audience as well. But that news is pretty horrific that you have to tell the world about every day so how do you how do you manage that yourself like how do you manage to mm. post that and and not like break as a person like you know we read your posts and it breaks us some days really you know so I can only imagine to write it and I cannot pretend like I have perfect methodology when I go about this to me now it feels routine like very much embedded in my life to be able to share what is happening in Myanmar some days I wake up and I wonder if it is in service of anything, if people are still watching. And sometimes it feels as though I'm just speaking into an echo chamber or vacuum. However, something my mother said to me in the beginning was, we should not look away. We need to watch. We are the ones who are witnessing and experiencing this. This is our duty. Even if we cannot do anything immediately, these are our people, so we cannot look away. Don't look away. 
And I remember that very early on. And I think I've carried that sentiment with me that I, I know I have the capacity to, to not look away. And this is my duty. Even if it pains me to do so, I believe in a way the work that I am doing is at least honoring the experiences of the millions of people who are going through this in different capacities. And if I am at least able to share our truth and be a mirror to what is happening here, then I hope that I can help even just a little bit. I think that is what's able to help me keep going. Because the worst feeling for me would be to feel worthless in this situation, to feel like I'm not able to do anything for my country. I would bring me bigger despair than anything that I am having to process and translate right now. What you're doing, I think, is amazing. And I am mm. one person who, who has learned so much about what's going on from yourself. So I'm very sure that I won't be the only person. And mm. in your bravery as well. I just think what you're doing is so brave. Um, mm-hmm. because there's one thing to be witnessing it and feeling it, but it's another thing as well to actually, you are becoming involved in it, obviously in a positive way. And it's incredibly brave what you're doing. I've got, I've got friends in the country who don't and aren't comfortable talking about it. So to share, to share what's going on. And I wouldn't have access to a lot of the things that you have told me if it wasn't for you. So mm-hmm. I know I'm just one individual, but that's just the one you're speaking to right now. Thank you so much for that. Well, that means a lot. <laughs> what you're doing means a whole lot more than my words right now. <laughs> Just picking up on what you're saying, Ruth, because I absolutely second that. Like, I think it's, 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 it's far more important and impactful than maybe you realize yourself, but <laughs> you must live with, or, or maybe you don't. I'd be curious with a fear. Like, is there a, a daily fear that any day, you know, you're still in country, which is, why what you're doing is, is such a, a bigger risk than outside the country like do you live in a fear or have you found a way to push that fear aside and, and push through it because most people I know are too afraid to do what you're doing like they're literally too afraid they would love to do it and want to do it but they live in this constant state of fear um, how do you work through that you know yeah perhaps it is because I don't think of myself as a person of interest for them as I said before I think I'm still a small fish in this revolution See, There are many people much braver than me who are doing a lot braver work than I am. But I think in terms of documenting, I have experienced fear. And I think I would be allowed to say that there are days that I question, am I putting not necessarily myself at risk, but the people in my life at risk, my friends and my family? Would it be easy for them to know, like, who I am and who knows me? Is that something I need to think about? But I have a support network who is very passionate about being a part of this. And we all have our different roles. I have you know, a cousin sister who also actively protested or she, she can drive. <laughs> so she used to drive the protesters home. That was what she wanted to do. She said, I cannot translate as well as you can. So you do what you can do. I will do what I can do. Uh, and the same thing with many of my friends also. I think in that sense, no. And I had the thought, oh, no, no, if they came for me, then they will come for me. And I will cross that bridge when it comes to it. Until that moment, I will do my best. Oh, but I had, you know, mental preparations and I've written letters in case anything happened and sent them to people that I met during the coup who had bigger platforms than me. 
in case. And it was quite a weird experience writing those letters with the thought that, oh, maybe I hope no one has to read this. But if someday someone has to read that I'm no longer here, what would I want to say? Are things that, you know, I would not have experienced otherwise being part of the coup, no? Because I hear even the smallest instances or people at checkpoints because they have an UG Facebook profile and that's the reason why they're abducted or taken away. So it can be quite daunting sometimes, but I think I've compartmentalized it in my head a little. <laughs> in those early stages as well, like even even when I was still there and, you know, I, I left maybe three weeks into the coup, but the abductions mm-hmm. at night had started even when I was there. Mm-hmm. That's quite a terrifying thing. Like you're terrified for other people. Like I wasn't terrified anyone was mm-hmm. going to come and take me in the night, but I was certainly terrified for, for people around me and my neighbors and and stuff. So that's still ongoing. And we also mm-hmm. have this, this where you say like most people who are like you speaking out have already decided they know the consequences of that and what may come. But there's kind of this horrific tactic where the military are punishing family members, innocent people, mm-hmm. even children, very young children. Mm-hmm. So that that's a, a different level of worry because you're taking a risk for yourself, but now they're putting that risk on everyone who knows you as well. Is that something that, that worries you more th- than for yourself? Yeah, and I think many Myanmar civilians are the same. We worry more about others than we do necessarily ourselves. Um, so we place provisions in order to minimize the risk for ourselves, knowing that if we can protect ourselves, in a sense, by extension, we're protecting other people also. So yes, we've thought about it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it absolutely blows my mind. And it's happened to my friend that the military have come in and they've taken her phone and she's been absolutely distraught because she's so worried. Uh, have I shared something? Yes. Have I posted something? And luckily they didn't find anything and they gave her a phone back. I just find it insane. I mean, I lived in Nader and, and obviously I'm a foreigner, but mm-hmm. this comprehends that they're now in a situation where you have to worry about what you post on Facebook, not because, you know, Facebook might turn it down, because you could be arrested and taken mm-hmm. to prison. It's just so hard to comprehend that mm-hmm. even that basic freedom of your own platform of social media is something that they think they have a right to control with such brutality. Yeah. Yeah, they believe they can. It's difficult to say. I wonder if sometimes I wonder, are, are these are the people we're up against? <laughs> you know, I see these things on Yoli propaganda segments. I'm like, you really think this is working? You know, we are smarter than this. We know, we know the truth. Um, at least the majority of us do. There are certainly military supporters, people who I know also on Facebook who you know, believe that Damadol is doing things correctly or they believe the fabrications that our side are the ones who are the ones causing chaos and violence within the country. But it has been like this for decades, though, in a sense. And maybe now that I'm more of an adult, I'm more able to see it than I was before. Because I'm also an ethnic minority in Myanmar. And, you know, I heard horror stories from my grandmother and my aunts. And yet, even when I was young, I didn't quite understand until now that I'm seeing it before my eyes, the very calculated, clinical, intentional 
strategy of domination and decimation that the military is enacting. This is not new for them. They've been doing this for a long time. But I think now I'm only able to see this for what it is now. And I feel I wish I had done something earlier because this evil has been with us for so long and we did nothing to stop it before. But I hope that we can stop it now that we have woken up, so to speak. In terms of the people that you know that are persuaded that it's actually the military who are the victims here and they're just trying to keep order. In mm. terms of the things like the NLD politicians that, mm. you know, they're brutally mutilated. There's acid maybe poured down their throats. How do they like rationalise that? Do they just say that's fake news or? Yeah, they believe it's fake. They believe the photos are doctored. Uh, I've learned quickly that there are going to be certain instances where I will have to reserve my energy for more important things. And I think military supporters, in a sense, are very much that where if I lean into it and if I respond to it, it's only draining my energy. It's not draining theirs. And so in that sense, I have to let go. But it's quite difficult. It's difficult for my mother also. She will constant when she watches me already. She, I haven't heard her swear very much in my life up until the coup, and now I hear her swear every day. And sometimes she'll just throw her slipper at the television when the online shows up on the screen, which is very comedic for me um, and my family. <laughs> we will laugh because we're just not used to seeing her in that position, and we have to find the humor of it. But to the point, I don't want to waste my time on them right now. They are not my priority. The military supporters are not my priority right now. And is trolling something you experience? Have you noticed an increase in people sending you nasty things? Is is that something that happens regularly now? Yes, I've noticed. Um, sometimes we'll get trolls because, you know, I speak out for our Warringah comrades. And that tends to incense a lot of Bama people, especially. And then uh, otherwise, I receive messages saying, oh, you know, you're doing this for fame, you're doing this for money. Go out there and be part of the PDF if you're really for the country. Which I think for me, yes, I feel guilty that I'm not a PDF member sometimes, in all honesty. But in the end, I also know that I just don't necessarily have the capabilities or skills necessary to be as effective. I don't want to be a roadblock to people. So let me take the role that I can right now and the capacity that I have. That's what I have to rationalize myself. But sometimes, yeah, I feel guilty and then I hear that. But they're saying it to me not because they genuinely want me to join the PDF, but because they're trying to just insult me, I suppose. I suppose those are mostly the messages that I have received since the, the coup has progressed. I think the thing is, if you did join the PDF, who would do your role? I mean, everyone, there's so many different roles needed for this to work. And if everyone just joined the PDF, then where would the information come from? How would people know what's happening? And mm-hmm. I think it's about finding your own skill set. People don't have your talent to write or your ability to translate. So, you know, you're using your talent, which is so important um, because I've had conversation with other people who are doing different things and also feel that like maybe I should have a gun and I should go there. Um, but as I say to them, the same thing is, but your talents are this and that is your strength and that's the one you need to use. So, yeah, it, they're just trying to break your spirit. That's it. And mm. I hope that you will stop, um, which is a sign of how effective doing is. I mean, you could take it as a in that way <laughs> if what you're doing wasn't working or, you know, affecting them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's 
yeah, I think it's because I still see myself as a nobody. <laughs> if the world was right, none of you would know me. That's the way I think about it. If things were good, if good people won, and if bad people didn't win, there would be no need for me to speak out and talk about what is happening in Myanmar. And people wouldn't know me. And I, we would all go about our days. But because we don't live in a world order where the good people win all the time, I think that's why now people know me. You know, I'm pretty introverted also, so I think I'm still trying to navigate that as well on a personal level. Because I see my social media and info sharing, not just about the news, but also just I share my thoughts on the crew or like various issues and incidents that happen. So it comes across as a very public diary for me. So I have a hard time calling myself an activist even still now because there's so many people who have done the work for far longer than I have. To be placed in the same category feels slightly disingenuous. But in another sense, too, the role that I've taken is to be a communicator and organizer. And I'm grateful I can be a part of it. Because as I said before, I want to do something, anything to help as much as I can. So You describe yourself as a small fish. And it kind of gave me that analogy of, you know, how when you get in the ocean, those shoals of hundreds of thousands of fishes. And like they're all incredibly important in terms of keeping that going and, and everything working. So you, you might think you're a small fish, but you're an important fish. Okay? <laughs> Are you carrying? carrying yes, I'm so I'm Bukin specifically. So um, there's several tribes within the Karen ethnic group. The majority of Karen are known as the Zagokie and I'm Bukin. So that's my ethnicity, yeah. You were talking about like your grandparents and things and the same that, you know, they've seen this before. Was their experience experiencing this as, as an ethnic minority? Yeah. So for my grandmother, she has seen everything, everything. Japanese occupation, British colonialism, independence, the first coup in 62, the second one, the third one. This is the fourth one for her. This is the second one for my mother, the third one for my father. So for a lot of us, especially my mother's side of the family, this is old news. And yeah, you know, there's definitely the element that the ethnic minorities have been oppressed and marginalized in Myanmar for quite some time, even prior to the coup. Very actively, the issue of land rights and environmental degradation that was occurring within our ancestral homeland, that we did not have the right to self-determination. On a more micro level, you know, my, my grandmother talked about you know, the raids that the military would go employ against the village. And we are also a religious minority. We identify as being Baptist Christian. And for her, she remembers the military burning the Bibles in front of her and how they, how they so wanted to destroy that part of our identity that has been so integral for us. A unique position in the world, I suppose, considering Christianity is the majority religion everywhere else. And yet here in Myanmar, we are the minority. And so you see places such as Chin State, which has taken much of the brunt of the military's violence and anger, is also many of them are Christian, Catholic. And so there is that dimension. We are imperfections within the system the military would like to build. We are the outliers for them, the parasites, the ones they want to stamp out or eliminate. Or if we do not bend to their will, we will be eliminated instead. Because that is the way that they have always treated ethnic minorities in Myanmar. My family legacy is just one example of that. 
do you think this time around, Tet, that there is a, like this more collective understanding around the country that maybe there hasn't been in the past? Like it seems mm. to us like people are really hearing other people this time, you know, and really identifying with the sufferings of the past. Is that a positive thing that's coming out of this, that people, you know, that will never go back to the way it was before? Yes, I suppose because of the coup, a lot of the social issues that plague Myanmar have now come to the forefront. And I think there's this collective mainstream realization of the violations and trauma that have occurred in the past, the sense of wanting to apologize and furthermore reconcile that we were very complacent in the past. And now as a collective, you know, we stand by each other and we will make sure that this never happens again. I think there is very much that commitment, especially in my generation, uh, Generation Z, of course. Um, and I do not want to discount the elders either because there are many different generational leaders who have done this work and who also feel very similarly and have been trying to speak out about the need for acknowledgement of ethnic rights or the rights of the queer community, the LGBT community here the issue of misogyny and patriarchy within Myanmar as well. That work that came before us is, has laid the foundation for us to have this more collective conversation now and to say, okay, I think now the mainstream community can say, oh, now we know. We are so sorry we did not stand by you before. We are here for you now. And tell us what we need to do. So there is that, there is that silver lining that we can really build a true federal democracy. I think, of course, there are still, you know, still divisions and still many conversations that will have to happen. One of the things I'm very thoughtful of is, you know, in, in many crisis or conflict situations, especially I think women tend to are able to take more radical roles than they would in a non-conflict situation. And I'm seeing that now with so many of the protest leaders being women or now even NUG, which is the National Unity Government or our civilian government. There are many strong ethnic women leaders who are there that were not there before. I do not want that when we win, to revert back to the conditions that we had before the coup, where women were not allowed to take those roles. I don't think we can rest on our laurels. We have to be proactive to make sure that that does not happen, that we do not revert to the conditions that we had before the coup. Yeah, I think that's really important what you say. And, and one of the things that we've learned just from this podcast that we didn't really have awareness of before was that things were not very good for a lot of people under the NLG government. Even we just saw some uh, Rohingya youth who were actually arrested for protesting under the NLG government sentence to, to quite large prison sentences. So there was things wrong in the last government, but there was a sense that because they weren't the military, that we won't question it, you know, because it's not brutal. They're not, they're not killing us on the street. But I mean, I think one of the things that comes across in your social media and your posts is that you don't want that to happen again. Like you want politicians to be questioned and people to ask more of them and not just to accept things without, you know, debate or. or mm, yes. Yeah, exactly. I think we have the issue of placing our leaders on pedestals. And that's why I'm also very careful. Please do not put me on a pedestal. That's what I would like to communicate because I think it's important that we hold our political leaders, our activist leaders, our organized leaders, anyone who is in a position of power, accountable, and to give them critique and to needs to be this acceptance that these calls of accountability can come from a place of love, of wanting them to do better rather than coming from a place of hate. Because as a collective, we want to do better. And I think that's a very important for us to 
continue to question and challenge the things that are being presented to us because in the past we weren't unable to do that. You know, I grew up under dictatorship and we were not able to question things and challenge things. And when, you know, when in 2011 the country started to open up, the day that Pizza Hut came to Myanmar, I thought to myself, okay, I think now we have really joined the world stage. And the door was open to us a little bit. Maybe not completely, but halfway through. Now the military is trying to close that door again, but they cannot make us unsee what we have already seen. So we need to make sure that we hold those tools and also apply them to the leaders that we have now. When we think about what you're saying in terms of also, and I think you make a really great point, activists, you know, that we shouldn't just accept that all activists are operating ethically or correctly or that they should go unchecked as well. Because sometimes the word activist, you know, in itself means you're doing something wonderful and no one should question that. But but we yeah. see a lot of people stepping into these spaces and, you know, some are maybe building great careers uh, and making money off the back of Myanmar suffering. And I think it's important to even to just like not accept what they're saying so easily uh, and maybe to, yeah. to go a little deeper at who's saying what and I think that's something I'm learning all the time when, when I'm in, in meetings or in advocacy groups and I'm looking at who's saying what and why, where are they coming from? You know, have they got a, a business that they're looking after? So they don't agree with this. You know, I, I think it's important to question everybody. And, and as you say, it can be coming from a really good place too, because people can get caught up in their own, you know, celebrity or newfound fame. <laughs> and they can lose yes. of themselves too. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, and that's also why the questioning, you need to question yourself. What is my work in service of? I think it's important for us to also question ourselves and ask ourselves a question like, what is my work in service of? Is the work that I'm doing causing more damage or harm to the people that I claim that I want to help? And because that's an act, it's active questioning. It's not a question you should ask one time to yourself and you think, okay, I'm done. The coup is the ever evolving situation circumstances change all the time and so I think it's also good for you to be actively questioning yourself is what I'm doing still effective and there have been many many situations that I've been in where I've you know, interacted with people where I've I have felt that they have lost their way or maybe they were never on the right track in the first place oh, yeah. me and Suzanne have had this conversation before there's some people where their ego gets the better of them and mm. it stops being about the cause anymore and more about them and we can very definitely vouch for the fact that you're not one of those ones <laughs> I wouldn't worry <laughs> oh, I appreciate that but uh, yeah I always want to be careful about that but it's good to have the family that I have they're my biggest critiquers so it keeps my feet off the ground so to speak mm -hmm. yeah I don't know whether you I'm sure you must have had this conversation at home just in terms of you know your mom and your grandma's background and I know that Aung San Suu Kyi has been criticised for her role in, in not helping mm. ethnic minorities the way mm. that was expected. Mm. Was that voiced at home at all? Did did your parents foresee this being an issue with her? Or was your family just as supportive as it appeared everyone else was when she got mm. her position? Yeah, because yeah, I think for my family and many of the people in that community, immediate community, we were quite supportive. And I think because in due part too, Doan Zanzuchi, more than being a political leader, she represented for a very long time what womanhood and femininity meant to me. Someone who was 
you know, elegant and educated and sacrificed so much for us, which are all good qualities to have, but it's been also a process for me to unpack all the implications of that and why was that presented as womanhood for me for a long time? And is that even fair to categorize her that way? She is a human being who has made many mistakes across her tenure as the political leader. Was that a disservice of me to place her on the pedestal? I think these are things that some people are further along in the process of unpacking that than others. And I think there will have to be a reconciliation on that front as well. In terms of Minang Long and his supporters, mm. is there that kind of feeling? Because obviously I think the man mm. is appalling, but there are supporters for the Tamador. So you have that same kind of unquestionable prestige. Is he yeah. being put on a in any way from any kind of objective? I believe so. But it's also because the Tamador, I think it's more the Tamador than it is Minang Mi'alai could not be a factor, and I think the military supporters would still support the military because I believe that Tamadaw, over the decades, has done a lot of work in order to build its brand, and it's presenting its usefulness to our country, quote-unquote. You're sick, aren't you? Yes. The immune system is so low. With everything you're doing, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me that you would pick something up so easily. Yeah, no, it's, it's not been good physically. Um, over the time, my physical condition has deteriorated quite a bit. Although I do feel very mentally strong sometimes, you know, I think my mind runs faster than my body can catch up. So it's always like out of sync for me sometimes. <laughs> also, that's part of the reason why I don't think I would feel very well as a PDF is I don't think my physical health is the best. So I am maybe more of a hindrance than I would be of help. Has this become like your whole life? Like every day you get up and, and you, you post, you take the news, you put it up, or do you like block off sections of the day to do that and then try to live your normal life in between? Yeah, this is mostly my life. I will wake up and do this and block off sections of the day to take a, to take a break for like an hour to just sleep and nap because I also have very bad insomnia. But, um, in addition to sharing the news. I'm also involved in other activities that I won't necessarily get into much detail about. And so that also takes some time during the day. So I'm assuming then, Ted, like prior to the coup, were you working or were you still studying? I was working. I was not in school. So I have less restrictions to do things while I was working. <laughs> and have you been able to continue working since the coup or has your work ended? Yes, I'm no longer part of the job that I was part of. So now I can dedicate more time to this. But like that is the case for a lot of people now in Myanmar. They just don't have work or jobs. I know a lot are in CDM, but even those who are not in government positions are able to work or earn a living at the moment. So uh, many of my friends that I met through work, some of them left the job during the coup and then went back to their respective ethnic states to join the defense forces. So that's considered their job now. And I think many of the, especially in the rural areas, we're seeing a lot of mutual aid where people will support each other by making sure each other is fed or um, if there is need for support to support each other through that as well. So. Has the banking system affected you at all? I mean, I've heard, I've got friends that have been paid into bank accounts and they've not been able to access money for months. Has there been any repercussions in terms of your, your friends or people that you know? Because I know there was all those stories about people getting up in the middle of the night to queue to try and get money and then they get there and mm. there's, there's no money left and all that kind of situation. Yeah, the Myanmar currency has um, inflated quite a lot. So I think that's been a very key issue for us, especially when we're trying to um, support the revolution monetarily. 
with supplies and food and medicine. In that regard, yes, we've run into issues recently of being able to transfer money as easily because the banks are under military control. Um, and we have to be very careful about how we distribute funds. And it, it sounds so ridiculous to me because, you know, much of the money that is being raised is to help people who are being displaced, people who have no food and no medicine. And they will not let us help them, like not even let us send rice to them. Like for Minda, which is where one of my friends is, we could not send rice to them. They confiscated so much of the humanitarian aid that we tried to send to them and even abducted the driver uh, who was transporting these basic things just as, you know, ramen and snacks and food. And that's considered a crime. It's considered a crime to help each other. And I just, it brings a lot of anger in me. I know they've built up their prestige and it's a big part of the history and things. But just in terms of the country not being able to function as it was previously, Surely mm. some of the supporters are questioning that or do they just put all the blame on the people that are resisting this military coup? Many of them will blame that, you know, oh, well, we're only like this because NLD government mishandled the situation. And now the military is trying to make it better and you guys are just being stubborn about it. I mean, yes, there are military supporters now, especially when the third pandemic hit with COVID, when they themselves got COVID and their families got COVID, and military did nothing to help them, many of them turned their back on Meowai and the Themadol. In a very cruel twist of irony, only when it affected them personally did they realize that the military was not going to support them, which, you know, I think is a very universal thing. We are seeing more of the rise of fascism, even in the Western world, and I'm sure that there are these types of conversations where you talk with people who you just cannot fathom why they don't, you know, one of the bigger moments where I got really emotional and angry was seeing the anti-vaxxers in the Western world. And I felt a lot of pity for them because they have no idea how desperate we are to receive vaccines here or even masks or even any COVID relief support here. And to see them so brazenly reject the vaccine that is so readily available to them fills me with a lot of pity for them because they don't, they don't know the meaning of community responsibility know the type of love that I have experienced from the people of Myanmar, from strangers when I was protesting. To have these brothers and uncles who I had never met at that point, I know that they would take a bullet from me. Many of them told me to back away or one of them, you know, would run towards the police to give us time to escape. That type of love, I don't know if the rest of the world has experienced it, but that is the type of love that we have here in Myanmar and why we are so desperate to protect each other. And so I wish the world would catch up with us on that front rather than us having to catch up with the rest of the world. I think people can only see it from their own very personal perspectives. And a lot of humans aren't able to truly empathize beyond affecting them. I'm not in remotely going to even attempt to try and defend the West's response. But going back to Myanmar, I imagine a lot of the supporters of the military have financially benefited from them. So mm. if they're not able to keep the, the banking system stable, then they mm. will be those ones also not just through COVID, but they'll be feeling the financial implications of the military not being in control here. So as mm -hmm. much as they can keep this blaming resistance, there's going to come a point when surely they're going to realise for their own family circumstances, it's going to be beneficial for them not to support them anymore. And, uh, exactly. And I think that's where we're seeing more of the defections. Because I think uh, these past couple of months now, we are seeing more defections from police and soldiers. 
because I think there is a collective realization from their side that the military is not going to help them. But we will help them if they leave Damadra behind and join our side. And just to pick up on the bank, because we know it's difficult, but we also know that there are a number of people who have ways and means to get money to those who need it. So in terms of people supporting and donating, it is getting there. People are having to be less transparent, I guess, about how they're doing that and where it's going. So it's about finding, you know, people you can trust and that you know, know this is getting there. But we can see people getting aid, but more needs to go there. And we need like Western governments to start getting this humanitarian mm. country to the correct, you know, ethical yeah. channels as well. Yes, absolutely. I think it is for us, these channels of donations or fundraisers that we have had since February, for us are very reliable. Perhaps the money is getting in a little bit slower now because the banks are more under military control, but certainly we are trying to find different creative avenues in order to utilize the donations that we're receiving from the international community to the areas that they were informed would be donated to. It cannot be ever understated how much it meant to us and means to us when the international community is willing to not only speak out for us, but also act on it by advocating for Myanmar within their respective countries or donating to Many, many different fundraisers that are being set up by civilians who are putting their lives on the line in order to do so, but have done so very diligently and very effectively. And the money that you're donating is literally saving lives. That cannot be understated. You know, we were able to get cold medicine to places in Downji and Chan State that in a system now where the healthcare system has completely collapsed, it is a miracle to be able to receive cold medicine now in some areas. So it cannot be understated how much that help has meant for us. And I know from talking to people in the last week who've been telling me the price of just basic medicines has skyrocketed and it's become like not affordable for a large number of population, even just to buy medicine if they had access to it. Yes. And we're also seeing more shortages here and there with the different pharmacies as well. And so that's also a point of concern. So I hate to say this as well, but I believe that we are going to be entering a period of starvation very soon because the farmers in Myanmar were unable to work on the fields uh, and yield crops and harvest in general. So we will have food shortages, certainly. And as a result, many people will go hungry and starve in our country as well. And the military will not help us in that regard either. So we will have to try and find different avenues to save ourselves as well. I don't expect anyone to have the answer to this question if they did like. <laughs> um, but what is the most realistic outcome over the next six, 12 months for Myanmar? Or what do you see as being realistic? Like what things need to happen to take this military down? Do we need further sanctions mm. on like Myanmar oil mm. and gas? Is that something that could be a key factor? You know, mm. NUG recognition around the world, would that be a key factor? Like what are the mm. things? you think uh, with your knowledge and in the in the groups that you are operating in that you think are the key factors yeah i think this will be not only just a physical battle it will be an ideological battle for us it will also be the battle of attrition which side can last longer than the other i think that Damado do not expect us to resist them as fiercely as we did they believe that there was enough anti-nld sentiment and with covid that we would be complacent and they could not have been further from the truth and the more they torture and abuse our people, there's a phrase in our culture we call seinare, which literally translated means our mind hurts. But it is to say that every time they hurt us, we remember that very fiercely 
and we are less and less inclined to negotiate and work with them. We are now very intent on the complete dismantling of the Thamadol completely from Myanmar. So what that will look like for the next six to 12 months, as it has been, we will continue to resist. The people will continue to resist. The military will continue to launch raids and attacks against its own civilians and abduct them, abuse them and murder them. But we will keep going. I have hope that we will win, but I know that the human cost will be quite high, particularly if the international community does not support us with our very clear demands that we have laid out, which in due part, you've touched on those sectors. The military is able to abuse and torture us because they have the means to do so, mainly through the use of arms that they are acquiring from international partners as well. They also still have channels of funding from MOGE, oil and gas companies, as well as other key businesses. If we can cut those channels off, the means for them to produce the arms that they need to hurt us will be decreased significantly and they will be financially constrained. And that will harm them as well because many of the business military supporters that we're seeing right now, it would not be in their incentive to continue to work with a military that does not have the money to pay them for their services. So that is one area in which we will require more international support to continue to push these businesses, these conglomerates, to cut ties with them completely. And then there's also the battle of legitimacy. Right now, the military is spinning its web of propaganda and trying to lull the international community into a sense of complacency and to say that they are the most viable means to bring back order to Myanmar. Let me be very clear. They are the reason why we are at the point of decimation. We live in fear every single day under them. I have seen people, men, drop dead in the streets either due to COVID or because they were shot by bullets from the military's own hands. As a woman, I was told very early on while protesting to take birth control pills in case I was abducted by them. These are the types of conditions that we are living under the military. They are not our government. They will never represent us. They are not the ones who have power over us and we will never bend to their will. And so in order to counteract that, we will require the international community to recognize NUG, the National Unity Government, which consists of not just the elected civilian government who were elected in November, but also key activists and ethnic leaders now as well, and to also engage with them so that they can improve as well. If there are any reservations about what they are doing, they are the ones who are the most open to having a conversation and open to change, not the Thamadaw. If you want to talk about, I hear the word dialogue a lot from the international community. If you want dialogue, have dialogue with NUG, not the Thamadaw. And so I think those are two key areas where the international community can help the bigger macro level battle against the Thamadol. And then on a more individualistic level, I think, again, supporting us monetarily, sharing what's happening in Myanmar so that we can continue to support each other and support the civilians with their basic needs because our basic needs are not being met. We're having military who steals oxygen from their own people, who bans them from being able to go to hospitals to receive any urgent care that they need, not just for COVID, but any emergency sickness that any person has. There is no easy way for them to access healthcare. And so that is why even the crucial funding is what allows us to be able to access the things that can help support our most basic needs. So those are key areas. And I think for motivation-wise, to see the international community protest on our behalf, it means so much to us. It really does. It's a, a vitamin boost for us to be able to see that people on the outside care about Myanmar. So please continue to be plugged in as well. So I think those four areas are the key areas in which we will continue to need support.
I'm reserving the right to put you on at least a little bit of a pedestal, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, people ask me, oh, you know, when we win, what do you want? I would be okay going back to being a nobody (laughs) and being able to have Korean barbecue again with my friends from the ethnic states now. Like, my friend is in Minda, and he is part of the CDF. And I promised him that I would treat him to dinner before he moved to Mendet. So that's why he had to stay alive. And so my sincere wish is when we win, one day maybe I'll go back to being a nobody and just have dinner with my friends again. So. And I think that's like the one thing we hear regularly. And I remember even the first episode we did was with Napang. And they were just saying like, all we want is just normal functioning life. <laughs> this is all we're asking for. And it's just so hard, you know, when you think about like what people are asking for. We're asking to be able to eat. We're asking to be able to access healthcare, education, to not be killed. You know, it's ludicrous that people have to ask for these things and that you even have to have like a UN committee come together to discuss who should represent that. Even that is even a question that needs to be discussed mm-hmm. at any level is just like, again, I think similar to you, like, I wish I had kind of become involved in things like this sooner. I mean, it took for, you know, it to affect my life on a personal level for me to be kind of, I guess, I don't want to use the word woke, <laughs> but like to wake mm-hmm. up and open my eyes to, to what's happening around me and around the world and just the injustices and that, you know, there's a lot of people who go into politics and it feels like they go in it for power and prestige and not for the things we would want of our politicians, you know, to care mm-hmm. for people and, People get so, you know, wrapped up in, I don't know, like, like, why are you in the UN? Like, why are you there? Why are you getting a salary? Why are you wearing a suit? Like, what is the purpose? Exactly. Exactly. And yes, my opinions on so many things have changed, but I also don't want to be cynical. I think even institutions such as the United Nations need to change. All of the tools and mechanisms need to be updated to better address the crises. Words of condemnation did not protect my friends from getting into insane. And as much as they said they want to help us, I think there's a sincere lack of creativity in terms of how to help in these crises. Same thing with policy analysts and journalists and academics. Like a lot of them, you know, they interview us and, you know, ask us to dole out our trauma again and again and very, you know, coded questions or they don't do the homework about Myanmar. And so I have to answer very basic questions about what's happening here, which is fine. It's okay. I have the capacity. But then it's clear to me the difference between the people who genuinely care about Myanmar and me as a person, as a human being, versus those who would use us to advance their career or view us as almost a geopolitical exhibit for them to analyze and dissect. And there's a sincere lack of the human element there, I believe. And I think that's why many of us have lost faith, especially in institutions such as ASEAN and the UN as well. Yeah, you know, I actually spoke to somebody recently and they were talking about even the process of trying to get refugee status and these like cold like prove to us that you were so brutalized that you can't go back. Tell us the detail. Mm. You know, mm. when you first realized you were gay, as if somebody is ready to tell a complete stranger something so personal. Like so I agree with you that the way things are being done absolutely needs a total overhaul and People need to go back and investigate how they've done things and listen to the mm. people who are telling them, which is why I think people like you are so important. These new voices, these are the ones that are coming from a mm-hmm. totally different 
different space, a totally different perspective. And I think that they need to be elevated hugely because there's so many things wrong with the current system. And I think people have lost sight of that. We're all human beings. We're people. I think it's just mm-hmm. side of that. And now you're just someone to analyze or somebody to write about. You, you know, you lose your humanity. It definitely needs to definitely like, I mean, right now the Tatmadaw needs to go and that's the priority. But when that's gone, <laughs> so much work to be done in Myanmar and around the world in terms of with these kind of crises in countries. I ask you and anybody, you know, why did you get into policy work? Why did you want to work for the UN in academics and become a journalist or become a scholar of Myanmar? I'm just one person and I cannot force you to care about me, but I'm hopeful that in sharing my truth and my story, that you can say that you know someone from Myanmar and that will galvanize you to help and I had a sad realization that even in doing so, there are many people who still don't care enough to do something about it. That I am perhaps just an amorphous character in their brain, like a character from a storybook or something whose ending hasn't been written yet, but a character nonetheless. I mean, that statement that the words condemnation don't save my friends. I mean, that's just, Mm -hmm. that blew my mind. It's so powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just, it breaks my heart that it, it takes it to be, the person's friends in power for action to happen like I mean we could sit here all day couldn't we and like talk about mm. how the wrong people are in power in in so many positions and like Suzanne said the immediate thing is the Tamadol was such an amazing speaker and to think that this this situation has has put you in in this position it's just like you're the type of person again you're on a pedestal for me I'm afraid <laughs> You're doing a hell of a lot in, in the way you can. And going back to those mm. fishes, it takes all those fishes to surround that shark. <laughs> well done. Mm, getting emotional, mm. so I'll meet myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. It, it means a lot to, to me. And I know it means a lot to my friends to have people like you who, who genuinely care and are watching over us. And it is that sense that we have people who are rooting for us to win. And that means a lot for us. So that even if all of us cannot be at the end of the road together, at the very least, we had people who were by our side, even for a little bit. And for that, we are very grateful. There's so much wonderful things that have come out of this and so many people we've met that we would never have met had this not happened. I try to look at those positives and the beauty that's coming Mm -hmm. in so many different ways. Mm It's so horrible and cruel every day we see what's happening in Myanmar. Just trying to get people to open their eyes to it and think, you know, you are one person, but you can save a life. You you actually can, Mm. really can do that uh, with a small, you know, piece of your time or, you know, a small sacrifice in your own way. Just trying to get that message across. But you're doing an incredible job. I mean, (laughs) you're so mature and your thinking is so just so compassionate but also very rational and very reasoned and thank you i think you give the information in a way in which it's not angry and it's not i guess it just it i don't know whatever way when i'm listening to you i'm like there's nobody that can disagree with this person it's just nobody (laughs) 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 say things and i'm like yeah i can see why someone might disagree with this because maybe in the way in which they've said it or you know what's come with it (laughs) I can't find any uh, disagree. No, uh, thank you. Now I'm turning red. <laughs> if I were to be born again, still, I wish I were to be born as someone from Myanmar again, as someone from a free and um, inclusive Myanmar someday. And I, I know that can happen because I know that people can succeed. So 
And I say that as a line that I wrote in the letter that I wrote in case I was no longer here. And I still feel that now, that even if I were to be born again, I hope I'm born from Myanmar once again. Some days are definitely harder, but as you said, I'm very grateful for the friends and comrades that I've met through this journey. So many people I would not have met otherwise. Uh, I'm just so sorry that it was under these circumstances. You know, I wish it was only because we had a shared interest in a book or something. That's the reason why we connected instead of this horrible dystopic situation. But I think in um, one of my protest friends, and she, oh, she's wonderfully brave. Um, you know, she said something. She said, this coup has brought some of the best out of me. And I think it's brought the best out of a lot of people. Also, the skills and the bravery and the compassion and kindness that I knew was there in Myanmar, I think, has been now amplified and multiplied even more. So hopefully with our best, we will get to the end of the road together. It's amazing. This has been one of my favorite conversations. You're so great. I can't say it enough. Like, no, it's okay. I know. And again, thank you so much for even considering me um, to be a part of this podcast. Yeah, I've, I've been following it for a while now, so I'm so um, honored and uh, really grateful that you considered me as an option to have this type of conversation with as well. So, I will be praying for both of you. Also, I vicarious trauma is also very real as well, and so I know that for many most likely for the two of you as two people who are plugged in and even as foreigners still i will pray for you always so please know that also thank you for listening to rnr podcast you can follow us on all major social media platforms it's at rnr podcast spelled a-h-n-a-h please like follow and subscribe Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.